Please turn in your Bible to the 25th chapter of Acts. This morning we continue our systematic study through this book of Scripture. And we're coming to the end. As we've noted before, these final chapters of the book are connected in such a way that it's difficult to find a break or to find a, a point to stop one sermon and start another. Uh, for that reason, it may seem like uh, this is same sermon, part one, two, three. Uh, I'm not particularly naming them that, but that's, that's what it feels like to me. Maybe that's what it feels like to you. We'll begin reading this morning in chapter 24, verse 24, to get, get a running start, if you will, just to remind us a bit of where we were last time. And then as we move into chapter 25, we'll get to the focal text once again. This is a great deal of reading, uh, but it will give us a full view. So please follow closely in your copy of God's word. Remember, this is the word of the living God. Acts chapter 24, verse 24. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about, the, about faith in Christ Jesus. But as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, Go away from me for the present, but when I find a more convenient time, I will summon you. At the same time, too, he, meaning Felix, was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Chapter 25. Festus then, having arrived in the province, three days later went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the leading men of the Jews brought charges against Paul, and they were urging him, requesting a concession against Paul, that he might have him brought to Jerusalem, at the same time setting an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus then answered that Paul was being kept in custody at Caesarea, and that he himself was about to leave shortly. Therefore, he said, let the influential men among you go there with me. And if there is anything wrong about the man, let them prosecute him. Verse 6, after he had spent no more than eight or ten days among them, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. After Paul arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many serious charges against him, which they could not prove. While Paul said in his own defense, I have committed no offense either against the law of the Jews or, <coughs> excuse me, or against the temple or against Caesar. Verse 9, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, answered Paul and said, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me on these charges? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. I have done no wrong to the Jews, as you very well know. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything worthy of death, I do not refuse to die. 
But if none of those things is true of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. Then when Festus had conferred with his counsel, he answered, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you shall go. Now when several days had elapsed, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and paid their respects to Festus. While they were spending many days there, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, There is a man who was left as a prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and elders of the Jews brought charges against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it is not custom of the Romans to hand over any man before uh, any hand over any man before the accused meets his accusers face to face and has an opportunity to make his defense against the charges. So after they had assembled here, I did not delay, but on the next day I took my seat on the tribunal and ordered that the man be brought before me. When the accusers stood up, they began bringing charges against him, not of such crimes as I was expecting, but they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion and about a dead man, Jesus whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate such matters, I asked whether he was willing to go to Jerusalem and there stand trial on these matters. But when Paul appealed to be held in custody for the emperor's decision, I ordered him to be kept in custody until I send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. Verse 23. On the next day when Agrippa came together with Bernice, amid great pomp, and entered the auditorium accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city, at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about whom all the people of the Jews appealed to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not any longer live. But I found that he had committed nothing worthy of death. And since he himself appeared, appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite about him to write to my Lord. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. For it seems to me absurd in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. Let's bow our heads for prayer. God, we ask your blessing on us now. Bless your word to the sanctifying of your people. Let your word penetrate to the depths of our heart and make it effectual to us. We pray for those who are here, lost without Christ. We pray that you would open their ears to hear Christ, to draw them to the Savior and to grant the graces of faith and repentance. We pray that you hide this preacher behind the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.
Paul was held in prison by Felix for two years. When Felix was relieved of his office, when he was replaced, he still did not release Paul. This is a sign of lack of character in Felix, though he knew that Paul had done nothing to warrant death and nothing even to warrant imprisonment, he still kept Paul in prison in order to satisfy the Jews. Now Festus comes as the new governor. And the Jews approach him on his visit to, to Jerusalem. Even after two years with Paul being in prison, their hatred for Paul has not diminished in the least. Even after two years, knowing that Paul has been deprived of his freedom, two years knowing that Paul has been imprisoned means nothing. It does not satisfy the evil of their heart. So they asked Festus to send Paul to Jerusalem. They had asked Felix before. Now they asked Festus to send Paul to Jerusalem on the pretense of a trial, but planning instead to ambush and kill Paul along the way. Festus would have been fine sending Paul to Jerusalem. He, he didn't know of their now two-year-old plot to kill Paul. And he was probably keen to make good relations with the Jews. He's here in this new place as the new governor over this area. And it's better to begin with amiable relations than to start with difficulty. So surely he wants to concede and do what they would like. But Paul, as a Roman citizen, did not consent to go to Jerusalem. Paul knew of the plot of the Jews to kill him. But Paul also would remember the words of the Lord Jesus who came to him and said that he would go to Rome. So Paul appealed to Caesar. The text tells us that a few days later, Felix, the new governor, received visitors. They came there to welcome the new governor to his post. And during their extended visit, Festus speaks to them about Paul. These visitors are Agrippa, Agrippa II, Agrippa II, Herod Agrippa II, and Bernice. And we'll find that it makes perfect sense for Festus to ask Agrippa about this matter with Paul and the Jews. Agrippa, whose father was Agrippa I, so he is Agrippa II, uh, and his father had died when he was very young. Uh, he was not immediately given uh, the kingship. He was given a smaller uh, responsibility. And you'll remember Agrippa I, this Agrippa's father from back in Acts 12. He was the one who accepted the praise and the worship from the people as a god. And the God of heaven, the true God, because of his pride, struck him and he was eaten by worms and died. 
that Agrippa, Agrippa one, had three children that we have met in our text in just the last couple of chapters. You'll remember Felix's wife, Drusilla. Drusilla was the daughter of Agrippa I. Now she has gone uh, and left town with her husband, Felix. But he also had a son, Agrippa II. Of course, Agrippa I had Agrippa II. But, but he had a son, Agrippa II. Agrippa II's name was Marcus Julius, but he is known as Herod Agrippa II, or in this text, just Agrippa. He's the only Agrippa living at that time. And he was the son of Agrippa I. And Bernice, who is mentioned here in the text, is also the daughter of Agrippa I. So Drusilla, Agrippa II, and Bernice, all children of Agrippa I, and we've met them here in our text. Here, Agrippa II and Bernice come to Caesarea. Now, if you're reading this text without prior knowledge, like many of us do, we have uh, a deficient understanding of history. You read that Agrippa came with Bernice and, and it, they're mentioned here like husband and wife. Agrippa came with Bernice and maybe you assume, oh, that must be his wife. Well, they are brother and sister. Bernice had had several failed marriages and there were rumors, there were reports that she was in an incestuous relationship with her brother, Agrippa II. I see the grimaces and the faces that say, you're following. Some report this incestuous relationship in history as fact. Others report it as rumor. But it seems clear that the rumors were known by all and were believed by all. At this point, I'm just trying to introduce you to Agrippa and Bernice in such a way that puts a disgusting taste in your mouth. That's really what, what we're after because we're going to see these. A, a little more about Agrippa, Agrippa II here. Agrippa had been appointed by the emperor to rule over the temple of the Jews and to appoint the high priest. If you'll remember, we've talked about the high priesthood at this time was confusing because the high priest was appointed for a lifetime, but then the Romans came in and they appointed a different high priest. Well, it would have been Agrippa who appointed those who came in to be the high priest. Because Agrippa was to rule over the temple because he was to be so involved in the Jewish religious system. Agrippa studied and he was taught about the Jewish religion. He had to know about it in order to rule and to, to be over that. So at this point, as he comes to Caesarea, Agrippa has been trained and he is very well versed in the traditions and the beliefs of the Jews. He would have known about the sects of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He was an expert 
in all matters Jewish. This is why it made perfect sense for Festus to bring Paul's case to Agrippa. Festus is new on the scene. He doesn't understand all the nuance and he needs help. And he knows that he needs help. So he asks Agrippa for help. There are others, there are commanders, there are prominent men, but especially, he says, especially you, Agrippa, I'm asking you. Agrippa would have been familiar with the Jews. He would have known something about Christianity and he would have known something about Jesus, whom we worship. He would have surely known by reputation Saul of Tarsus, the Pharisee of Pharisees. Agrippa would have surely known that Saul of Tarsus had switched sides and changed names. And he was now Paul, the Christian, the follower of Jesus and a Christian teacher. So when Festus brings up Paul's case, Agrippa jumps at the opportunity to hear Paul in person. Paul would have been famous or infamous, depending upon how you look at it. He, he wanted to hear him in person. Look again in verse 22 and 23. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I, would also, I also would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you shall hear him. On the next day, when Agrippa came together with Bernice, amid great pomp, and entered the auditorium, accompanied by the commanders, remember those were the commanders of the Roman army who would rule or who would uh, be over thousands. It has also been suggested that there may have been some centurions here. We wonder if Cornelius, the centurion, might have been present. But that's just conjecture. He's accompanied by the commanders and the prominent men of the city at the command of Festus, Paul is brought in. There are some respected Bible teachers who consider this great pomp that is mentioned. Isn't that a fun word? You can say it under your breath if you want to. The great pomp that is mentioned here. They, there, there are some who have an interesting take on it. They, they assert that the pomp would not have been for Festus. I mean, he is relatively new, but he's been there a while now. And surely there were welcoming ceremonies and surely there was pomp for him. But at this point, all that would be over. Agrippa and Bernice have been in town, but they've been in town for a while now. And, and again, there may have been some sort of welcome for them, though they did not come to have great pomp for them. They came to welcome Festus and to, to greet him in his new post. But whatever pomp might have been for Agrippa and Bernice, that also, these teachers assert, would surely be done, would be over. These teachers, uh, most notably R.C.H. Linsky, believe that the great pomp that is mentioned was for Paul the Apostle. There's much more to their reasoning that I won't present, but it is interesting to consider that Paul is the center 
of the big to do on this day. That there's, there's no other items on the agenda. There's no other reason to be gathered there. All these people, all these great men, this crowd comes together with Festus and Agrippa and Bernice for one purpose, to hear from Paul. If you'll remember in Matthew 10, Jesus told the apostles that they would testify in his name before governors and kings. Now here stands Paul before Felix, before Festus the governor and before King Agrippa. And in God's providence, there is great pomp. Pomp. We use the word not very often, so maybe we need to know what it means. Pomp means a ceremony of splendid display. And where there is pomp, it indicates that something important and momentous is taking place. Pomp indicates importance. Think, think of the times in our day, in our world, where we see pomp. Think of the inauguration of a president. The commissioning of a military officer. There's great pomp. The launching and christening of a new naval vessel. Something that most of us get to observe at least once and probably a few times in our life with pomp is the graduation of a class of students. And some of you are already thinking it, so we'll go ahead and say it. Often at the graduation of a class of students, they play a song called Pomp and Circumstance. We see pomp in our day, and every time it is an indication that it, there is an important event taking place. Now we consider that Paul is coming to speak to these important people gathered there, the governor, the king, the commanders. And Paul is coming to speak, not just to speak to them, but to speak to them about Jesus. And there was great pomp. I'm sure whoever planned all of the things for this ceremony and for this great pomp did not do it for this reason. But God made sure in his providence that this gospel presentation would have the fanfare that it deserves. Let's read again verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa, and all you gentlemen here present with us, you see this man about him. All the people of the Jews appeal to me, both at Jerusalem and here, loudly declaring that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had committing, committed nothing worthy of death. Since he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to send him. Yet I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after the investigation has taken place, I may have something to write. It seemed absurd to me in sending a prisoner not to indicate also the charges against him. I, I find it interesting 
that Festus is ready to send Paul to stand before the emperor, and this would be Nero. Let me pause here. I find it interesting that Paul appeals to Nero. But then that Festus is ready to send Paul to Nero and doesn't know what to say about his crimes. The reason he doesn't know what to say about his crimes is because there were no crimes. Paul had done nothing criminal. But consider what Festus says as he comments to Agrippa and those important men who were gathered there. I found that he committed nothing worthy of death. What is he here for? Well, Festus does have an idea earlier in verse 19, as we read, Festus rightly frames the problem when he says the Jews simply had some points of disagreement with Paul about their own religion and about a dead man Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be alive. I don't know about you Christians, but I have a hard time reading that sentence about a dead man, Jesus. That's hard to say. Because not only did Paul assert Jesus to be alive, so do we. This is really getting down to the crux of the matter with Paul. He believed that Jesus was alive. The Pharisees, they believed in resurrection. And Paul believed in resurrection. But Paul believed specifically that Jesus had been raised from the dead. The lost person, this is still the germ of the Christian faith. We believe that Jesus lived and died and lived again. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We believe that Jesus is alive. If you reject Christianity, this is what you are really rejecting. Christianity is not about how many hypocrites you've met in your life. It's not about how awful some church people have acted at one time or another or will act awful again. Christianity was then and is now about Jesus Christ raised from the dead. If Christianity was about those other things that people reject, hypocrites and poor behavior in church, no one would be Christian. Because we all know hypocrites. Because we've all been in churches where people acted ugly. But if Jesus is alive, that changes things. That makes a difference. If Jesus lives, then what he claimed is true. If Jesus lives, then he is the Savior of sinners and the only Savior. So lost person, don't look at imperfect Christians who sometimes behave badly. Rather, look to Jesus who was dead and now is alive again. Christianity is not about me 
or you or any other person in a church, Christianity is about the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is turning out to be more of an introduction. You might call this part next. And we'll consider Paul's defense before Agrippa next week, Lord willing. But I'd like to make one observation before we close. I spent time earlier laying out the case that Agrippa and Bernice were pretty bad sinners. Just, just going, if I were to pick a word that describes some of your faces when we're talking about that, disgusting. Agrippa and Bernice, the sin that they lived in daily was the kind of sin that sinners call disgusting. The kind of sin that sinners call sin. And now Paul, Paul, the man who just said, I have a clear conscience before God. Paul, the man who stands there having done no crime, he is innocent. Paul, the righteous preacher of the gospel, the apostle of Jesus Christ. Paul is called to speak to the likes of Agrippa and Bernice. How, how will Paul address them? Now we'll get to this next week, but how? How will he address them? Maybe, maybe he won't. Maybe he will refuse to stand before these grotesque sinners. Maybe he'll refuse to defile himself in such a way. Maybe he'll come before them with attacks, spewing words of hatred and disgust for them as sinners. Will he talk down to them? Will he condemn them? Now, beloved, isn't this our attitude and our method too often? Do we say things like, I refuse to even speak to that gay person in the office? I won't even talk to those people in my family who are living in open sin. I haven't talked to them in years. They're sinners. <clears throat> Beloved, if we don't talk to them, maybe when we do talk to them, do we take those opportunities to register our disgust? To register our disapproval of them. Paul spoke to Agrippa and Bernice. As well as all the others who were gathered there that day. And he spoke to them with respect. He spoke to them with the respect that was due to them as persons made in the image of God. And he spoke to them with the respect due to them in their position. 
They may have felt conviction or condemnation from the law of God and the spirit of God, but Paul did not add to that conviction and condemnation. Paul, and we'll see that he states this, we'll see next week, Paul truly desired to see these sinners come to Jesus Christ in repentant faith. I think sometimes we're more interested in people knowing how good and righteous we are than in seeing Jesus as a forgiver of sins. Too often we demonstrate that we don't really want to see sinners come to repentance. We'd be more satisfied to see them condemned. We can learn here from Paul how to treat sinners. Now, before somebody runs away with this, Paul did not gloss over sin. Uh, Paul didn't call sin good. He didn't gloss over sin. He never approved of sin. But Paul could, like you and I should be able to do, look at his own life, at his own sin before Christ, and say, Jesus forgave me of that sin. Remember, this is Paul who called himself the chiefest of sinners. If God saved me, Paul might say, he can save Agrippa and Bernice. If Paul brought me out of the depths of sin that I was in, he can do the same for Agrippa and Bernice. He can do the same for Festus. He can do the same for all those who are gathered. Christians, let us remember. I've heard preachers say, we should, we should never remember our sin. We should never remember our lostness. Please don't ever forget. Please don't ever forget the, the mire and the depths that God brought you up out of. And when we speak to others, we don't, we don't approve of their sin. We don't condone. They probably already know that you disapprove of their lifestyle or their choices, their sinful choices. We don't have to approve of it, but we need to speak to them about Jesus Christ. We need to give them respect as people made in the image of God. As sinners who are no more sinners than we were before Christ saved us. Paul wanted to see sinners come to Jesus for salvation. And my prayer is that we also would desire to see sinners come to Christ in repentance. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that the gospel that you have given us, that Jesus died to save sinners, is not just for good people. It's not for good people at all. It's for sinners. And God, you've saved us. Who among us could look at our own hearts 
and not know what Jesus has done, not know the importance of the cross of Christ, not know the importance of, of the life of Christ as he fulfilled the law that we might be clothed in his righteousness. God, remind us of our own salvation in Jesus Christ and give us hearts Give us the desire to see sinners saved. In Jesus' name.